to the book of James. We will, Lord willing, be going through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse over the next few weeks and months. But we're going to begin this morning with an introductory uh, message, James chapter 1, and just the very first verse as our reading, James 1 and verse 1, where it simply reads, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Trust the Lord, lad, his blessing to the reading of his word. Remember when I was a young pastor going to a navigators conference uh, in, the, in the city of Dublin, and I uh, went along, and you go to these things, you sign up for them, and you give them your name, and they have a little badge made for you upon arrival with your name on it, so there's no need for really in- introductions with the other delegates at the conference. And uh, I was given this badge, and it said, Pastor David Moore, uh, Lifegate Bible Baptist Church. And so I was wearing my little badge, and I was standing by the book table uh, at the close of the first session, looking at some of the books and studies that were available. And a young man straddled up beside me, and he says to me, Oh, who are you? And he, re- and he looked at my badge, and then he says, Are you saved? And I remember thinking, What a moron. Don't he, can he read? It says, I'm the pastor of the Baptist church. And then I thought to myself, Actually, that's a great question, because being the Baptist pastor doesn't mean that you're necessarily saved. So at first I was a little bit taken aback that he would ask me that question, but then after a bit I sort of thought, well, actually, uh, you know, give him some credit here. He had a bit of courage and a bit of, uh, a bit of uh, you know, gumption about him, and he decided to go ahead and ask this person who was labeled pastor whether or not he was saved. And that was a good question to ask, not just pastors, but anybody, uh, really. You know, if you could describe yourself in just one word, what word would you use? Very often the word that is used to describe me is pastor. And, uh, you know, sometimes even my kids got confused with that. I remember one of them one time referred to me as pastor in the living room. Uh, and the, ch- and the, and, uh, the child was asking a question. He said, she said, pastor. And I said, stop, I'm not your pastor. I'm your daddy. It's a different relationship. And sometimes we get labels, don't we? We put labels on each other. We put labels on ourselves. I wonder this morning, if you were to put a label on yourself, if you were to identify yourself with one particular word, what word would you choose to identify yourself? What word might describe your person or might describe your character? Would you describe yourself by means of occupation? Might you say, well, I'm so-and-so and I'm a farmer, or I'm a plumber, or I'm an office worker, or whatever it is that you uh, do. Or maybe you might uh, describe yourself by means of medical condition. You might say, well, I'm diabetic, or I'm asthmatic, uh, or some other condition. might be a personality trait that you focus on. You know, if I say, well, you know, who are you? Tell me about yourself in one word. You might say, well, I'm fun, or I'm, uh, I'm pessimistic, or I'm optimistic. Uh, you might use some other term. You might use a family connection. You might use that relationship, say, well, I'm a father, I'm a mother, I'm a son, I'm a daughter. Or, or perhaps even you might apply a hobby to yourself. I'm a golfer, I'm a knitter, I'm a fisherman, or whatever it may, may be. If there's one word that would sum you up, What would that word be? I want you to take a moment and think about that. If 
I was to call you right now and ask you to stand where you're seated and say, give us one word that describes you. Now, don't look so worried. I'm not going to do that. Give us one word that would describe you. What word would you choose? Maybe you maybe take a little note of that word this morning. James had a word. He opened his epistle and he greeted his readers with this address. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is James's description of himself. If he was to have a badge on at a navigator's conference, it wouldn't say pastor, it would say servant. Servant. And the Greek word is doulos. It means a bond slave. James was saying to his readership that he was a servant in bondage to Jesus Christ. And that voluntarily. He was someone who served the Lord without any desire of wages or advantage. In other words, he was a slave. He says, I am James and I am enslaved to Jesus Christ. What a way to begin this letter. You know, James could have said many different things about himself. He might have applied various adjectives to describe himself or labels that he could have given himself. And, you know, he certainly had many options because there's many things that James could have said about himself that are far more impressive than the word slave or the word servant. But he chose this one, James, a servant of God. You know, there are three men in Scripture who bore the name James. The first of these is the Apostle James, who was the brother of John, and he's one of the inner circle of Christ's disciples, and as such he was privy to some of the key moments in the Savior's life and ministry. The second James is James the son of Alphaeus, and uh, he's referred to sometimes in the authorized version as James the Less. That sounds uh, rather, uh, somewhat rather demeaning to refer to somebody as the less. Uh, you know, we've got several men in our church who uh, share the same name. We've got several Trevors and Davids and what have you. And, you know, if I was referred myself as David the pastor and David Wright as David the less, that wouldn't uh, seem very uh, complimentary, would it? Uh, but it doesn't mean that when it says James the less that he was somehow uh, belittled or that he was of lesser value than the other James. It just means he was shorter in height. He was the shorter, uh, shorter uh, James, uh, just as we might refer to Trevor and, well, anyway, uh, you, get, you get the gist. So we Trevor the less. Okay, so anyway, I move swiftly on. Uh, the other James is this James, the writer of this epistle. And unlike the other uh, other Jameses, he was not an apostle, uh, but he was, interestingly, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, being born of Mary and Joseph. Look in Matthew chapter 13, if you would, in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. 
Here he's teaching at the synagogue in, uh, in Nazareth, and, uh, and we find that uh, the people are querying who he is. And notice their question in verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? That's Jude who wrote the other epistle toward the end of our Bible. So here's James is mentioned as the elder brother among these others that were related to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Catholicism teaches that Mary remained a virgin until her dying day. Uh, That's not a biblical teaching. That's a traditional teaching. It's a false teaching. For Mary and Joseph had a regular marriage, the same as any other marriage, after that Jesus was born, and they had other children. And one of those children was this man, James. So James could have written, James, a servant of God and brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, here's an identity he could have legitimately laid hold upon. He was brother of the Lord. Now, when I was growing up, there was a boy who lived up our street. His name was Trevor Hendren. And I liked Trevor Hendren. I used to play with Trevor Trevor Hendren. Trevor Hendren's claim to fame was that he had a cousin by the name of Sammy Nelson. Now, if you're not a football fan, that'll mean nothing to you, particularly if you weren't around in the 1970s. But Sammy Nelson was a professional footballer. He played for Arsenal. And he played for Northern Ireland. And so when I would go out into the street to play with Trevor Hendren, Trevor would constantly remind me that he had this famous footballing cousin. And he would always say, you know, Sammy Nelson's my cousin. He would say it constantly. Uh, Every time you met him just about, somewhere along the way in the course of conversation, he would throw into the conversation that Sammy Nelson was his cousin. Well, I got a little bit frustrated with this. A little bothered about this, especially since we had absolutely nobody famous in our family whatsoever. And so I thought to myself, well, I've got to do something to shut him up. And then I found out that the captain of the World Cup winning side for England was Bobby Moore. So I said, that's nothing. Sammy Nelson, that's nothing. My uncle is Bobby Moore. And so I used to brag that Bobby Moore was my uncle. And then I realized that there was a whole group of famous people who had the surname of Moore. So I realized Roger Moore, the old James Bond, he was one. So I threw him in on the family. Oh, I and Roger Moore, he's my daddy's cousin. And then there used to be a TV show on with a comedian and actress by the name of Mary Tyler Moore. So I invited her into the family. Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, she, she's also one of ours. And then, and then one night I was sitting up late at night and there was a show called The Star, The Sky at Night and it had Sir Patrick Moore. Brilliant, we've got a famous astronomer in the family. And so this tall tale that began with Bobby Moore did as all tall tales do. It just got taller and taller and taller until Trevor realized that unlike himself, None of my famous celebrity relatives ever visited our home or ever came into our street whatsoever, and the lie was was soon discovered. But, you know, if really I had been related to any of those people, I would have gladly bragged. Well, this is my brother. This is my cousin. This is my nephew. This is my whoever it is. 
Imagine being able to say, Jesus is my brother. I mean, what a conversation started. And what a way to open up a discussion. To be able to say that you once knew somebody and, or met somebody who was really famous. James could have said, I knew Jesus. He grew up in our house. He was my elder half-brother. I know a man who went to school with Elvis. Honestly, that's not a tall tale. I really do. He went to school with Elvis. In fact, he was in our church not so long ago. Uh, Brother Joe Gammon, when the folks came over from Tennessee, uh, Joe came with them. And Joe went to school with Elvis Presley. Uh, when, when we lived in Stoke, uh, the, the, the person who is the most famous uh, uh, native of the city of Stoke was uh, the pop singer, the rock singer, Robbie Williams. You'd be amazed how many people in Stoke are related to Robbie Williams. Everybody you talked to went to school with Robbie, served Robbie, knew Robbie, lived in the same street as Robbie, knew Robbie's mom, knew Robbie's dad. Everybody knew something about Robbie. But to say, Jesus is my brother, that trumps them all, doesn't it? I mean, who's going to better that? Who's going to improve on that? So if ever there was anyone who had cause to boast about how they knew or had met or had a relationship with someone famous, James was that man. Now, you know, you would think that growing up in the home of Mary and of Joseph and of Jesus, that James would have been quite naturally a believer. You know, we might expect him if he were to share his testimony to begin his testimony this way. Well, I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home. And I was saved at an early age. But that was not James's testimony at all. In fact, quite the opposite is true. James resisted the gospel. He resisted the truth. He did not believe, even though day by day the truth of the gospel was quite literally staring him in the face in the person of Christ right across the room. James was not a follower of Jesus. Look in John's gospel, if you will, in chapter 7. John's gospel, chapter 7. John's Gospel, chapter 7, it says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry. Now, let's stop at that little word just to explain it. That means Judea. Literally, in the Greek, says Judea. He would not walk in Judea. He wasn't going into southern Israel because the Jews in Judea, particularly in Jerusalem, sought to kill him. Now, the Jewish feast of tabernacles was at hand. And his brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. Now notice, his brethren here are separated from his disciples. So when it says his brethren, they're not talking about his disciples, they're talking about his physical relations, his brothers. It says his brother said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the work that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret 
and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Now notice verse 5. For neither did his brethren, his brothers, according to the flesh, believe in him. Isn't that remarkable? You know, if you're here this morning and you're growing up in a home where there are few believers or no believers, and you think you're having a hard time and you're thinking nobody else in church understands because everybody else in church pretty much comes from a Christian background, had a Christian upbringing. Listen to me. The Lord Jesus grew up in a home with unbelievers. He knew what it was like to live with unbelievers, to have people mock at the things of God, to have people question him. And that's what's happening here. Brothers do as brothers will do. They make fun of him. They mock him. They say, well, why don't you go on into Jerusalem? You know, if if you're really the Messiah and all of that, if you can really do all these miracles, well, why don't you go ahead into Jerusalem? Here's the Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody's going to be there, and you you can perform your miracles in every Everybody will follow you. You see, they were making light of him. And James was one of those. And James remained in this condition for some years. He was unmoved by the Savior's presence in his home. He was unmoved by the Savior's presence in his life. He was unmoved by his miracles. He was unreached by his teachings. James wasn't even converted on the day that Jesus died. Get that. When Jesus was put to the cross, James was still an unsaved man. You say, well, when did James get saved? Well, let's look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's the great resurrection chapter. And Paul opens it by declaring the truth of the resurrection. And he says this in verse 3, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and was seen of Cephas, that is, of Peter, then of the twelve, that's the other disciples. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep, they've passed away. But watch verse 7. After that he was seen of, notice what it says, James. After that he was seen of James. Then all the apostles. Then of all the apostles. He was seen of James. It was only when James meets the resurrected Christ that he comes to that moment in his life where he yields to the truth of uh, the Savior and commits his heart and life uh, to the Lord Jesus. It's interesting the Lord sought James out in particular. It rather reminds me of Joseph's revelation uh, of himself to his brothers. You remember the story of Joseph. We covered it not so very long ago. How he was mistreated. How they thought he was dead only to discover he was in fact alive and well. That he was ruling over Egypt. And he had this rather grand title. Safnath Panea. Savior of the world. And so they come into Joseph's presence and he ultimately unveils himself to them as the Savior of the world. And so it was with James. James rejected Christ. He wanted nothing to do with his claims of Messiahship. But when he met him after his death, after his burial, after his resurrection, James says, that's good enough for me. And he put his trust in the Savior. Now you might think that He should mention some of this as he opens his epistle. 
that he should say he's directly related to Jesus, that he should say that he has seen the risen Lord. He could have basked in the glory of that. He could have camped out on that. He could have eaten out on that for a very long time. It would have opened doors to him. James was a preacher. You know, preachers very often uh, get the doors opened by means of connections. It's a web of connections. One brother knows another brother knows another brother. And that's how you get your invites usually. Imagine what invitations James might have got if he had worn this label, James, the brother of the Lord. Everybody may say, have that fellow James come. He's a brother of the Lord. Give James an invite. Let him preach the gospel mission this year. He can do the harvest service. He'll do the week of ministry. Have James come. We'd have opened all kinds of doors to him. But that's not how James introduces himself. Not only could he have claimed his, claim, his claim to fame have been his relationship to the Lord Jesus, But notice, I want you to see something else about James in Galatians chapter 2. And I want you to see how Paul refers to him. Look in Galatians, if you will, and chapter 2. Here's another way in which James might have identified himself. In Galatians chapter 2, in verse Paul says that when James and Cephas and John, James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, pillars in the church, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go into the heathen and they unto the circumcision. Think about that. Here is Paul and he's placing James alongside Peter and John as a pillar of the church. The phrase indicates someone who's at the very heart of things. You know, someone who is central to the proceedings. Someone who's a figure of influence. uh, Someone who carries a degree of weight in the church. In fact, according to Galatians chapter 2, had it not been for the acceptance of Paul by James and by Peter and by John into the uh, early church, that uh, there would have been a real difficulty for Paul proceeding and progressing from there. In other words, the whole course of church history was changed because James was willing to forgive Paul the persecutor and willing to accept him into the church as a member. And so now we find he has another feather in his cap. He could have opened his epistle this way. James, the brother of the Lord and the one who accepted Paul, the great apostle, into the church. He could have said that. And then he could have said this. He could have called himself pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Look in Acts chapter 21, if you will. Acts chapter 21. He could have referred to himself as the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Acts chapter 21. and Verse 18. Here's Paul, he's at Jerusalem, and it says, And the day following, Paul went in with us into the church unto James, and all the elders were present. Now, there are some churches that are considered to be prestigious, churches that have their place in 
church history that the pulpit is considered to be a much coveted pulpit. You know, the pastor who preaches there is considered to be especially privileged if he's invited to preach in a particular pulpit. You know, in Western church history, we might think of some churches that stick out in that way. You might think of Spurgeon's Tabernacle in London where Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preacher, uh, Preachers, uh, ministered and pastored. Uh, to preach in that pulpit would probably be considered by most to be a great honor. Or maybe you think of the Moody Memorial Church in Chicago where D.L. Moody ministered or the People's Church in Toronto or some other church you might think of even locally. You might think of some churches that are considered to be more prestigious than others. And these churches, whatever they may be today, have all an illustrious past, and their history casts shadows over them to this present day. But the mother of all churches was the church at Jerusalem. And James was the pastor of that church. And he ministered in that church For many, many years, over and over, his name crops up, as it does here in Acts chapter 21, as the leader of this particular church, a church which Peter was a member of. And when the apostle James was martyred, Peter, having been freed from prison and almost certain to die himself, instructed those gathering at the home of John Mark to go and show these things unto James And the brethren, not James the apostle, but James the pastor, James the half-brother of the Lord. In Acts chapter 15, there's a controversy about Gentile entry into the church. The church has been primarily Jewish to this point, but now there's Gentiles being saved under the ministry of Barnabas and Paul and, and others. And, and the question is, well, what's to become of these Gentiles? Do they need to conform to Judaism? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to submit to the law? And there's a grand meeting of the minds in Acts chapter 15. You should take the time and read it uh, sometime. Uh, but this whole controversy comes to an end, and James is the one at the end who delivers the final determination permitting Gentiles liberty. And so yet again, James has another title with which to woe his listeners and his readers. Imagine how this book looks now. James, half-brother of the Lord, pillar of the church, pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Phew, there's a guy you want to have in your pulpit. There's a man you want to meet. There's somebody you want to sit under and listen to. And yet, what does he say? He just says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I wish some preachers would get a hold on that. A pastor is just a servant of God. That's all he is. Nothing more and nothing less. I'm very appreciative of my mug today. Be careful or you'll end up in my sermon. It shows that I have absolutely no respect whatsoever in this church. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Of course I have respect. But, but, you know, it's just lovely to be counted as one of the brethren. To be counted as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what James says he is. He's one who is 
under the ownership of another. He is one who has reneged his personal rights. He is one who may be used in whatever way his master decides. Uh, James sets aside all the legitimate uh, descriptions he could have chosen for himself by way of introduction and identifies himself with one word, servant. That's what I am. I'm your servant. And when I asked you to identify your life and your personality, your character with one word, I wonder what word did you choose? Writing as a servant, James addressed his letter to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. He's obviously writing to people of Jewish descent. He would call, we would call them Messianic Jews today. Uh, and uh, they've been scattered abroad. Well, you say, well, how come they're scattered abroad? Well, think about it. You go into the early part of the book of Acts and what do you find? You find that it's the Feast of Pentecost. You find that there are Jews who have come from all parts of the world, devout men out of every nation. And the, the nationalities are listed there. People of Mesopotamia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Crete, Arabia, and other places. And these people came, they heard the gospel, thousands of them got saved, and they went back to their homelands carrying their testimonies, sharing about their conversion. But there was very little opportunity for teaching or or discipleship. James is writing to these Jews who are scattered abroad. He's writing also perhaps to the Jews who were scattered abroad as a consequence of persecution in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. The Jews having been scattered, having been persecuted in Jerusalem, were scattered abroad. And again, uh, these people need some encouragement. They need some teaching. They need some help in their walk uh, with the Lord. And these are the people to whom James is writing. Now, I want you to notice this verse as we draw to a close this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, and he uses this word, greeting. It's the Greek word, kairos. And it means rejoice and be glad. He says, James, a servant of God, a doulos, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad to these Jewish people living in other parts of the world, he said, rejoice and be glad. I love that. Rejoicing is one of the great marks of our faith. Mind you, you wouldn't think it to look at some of the folks that gather in our churches sometimes. Sometimes we look as miserable as sin, don't we? But my goodness, the Bible calls us to rejoice. To be glad. Are you glad that you're saved this morning? Are you rejoicing in the Lord this morning? Are you thrilled about what Jesus did for you this morning? No matter what's troubling you. No matter what the, what the circumstances of your life may be, no matter how hard it has been for you in the last few days or the last few weeks or the last few months or the last year, here's the one thing that holds true whatever your circumstances are is that God sent his son from heaven to save you and you're saved and saved indeed and saved forever. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. Some of these people were suffering hardship that James was writing to. 
Many of them were experiencing trials and great difficulties, but James wants them to face their future, whatever their circumstance, rejoicing in the faithfulness of God, confident in the grace of God, assured of his free salvation. You see, the Lord Jesus himself was very clear that uh, whatever becomes of us, he wants his joy to remain within us and for our joy to be full. Our joy to be full. Let's stop this morning and consider the most important word in this introduction. James, a servant. If you can do nothing else, or you can be nothing else in your Christian life, you would do well to be a servant. Just be a servant. You know, in the summer of 1986, two big ships collided in the Black Sea, just off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of people perished as these ships collided, and they were hurled into the icy waters below. And news of this disaster was later on darkened when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technical problem. It wasn't like they'd had a a radar malfunction. It wasn't a weather-related problem. It wasn't a foggy day like today where they couldn't see one another. The cause was put down to pure human stubbornness. You see, each captain of those ships was aware of the other captain's ship's presence nearby. And both of them had plenty of opportunity to change course and to steer clear of collision. But according to the news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first. And by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. The course was set, and both ships met one with the other. Many people don't like the idea of surrendering our lives to others. Of being a servant. Because we feel it's beneath us. I'm better than that. Really? We don't want to give way. We don't want to be involved in the menial work of the ministry. And, you know, there are plenty of conferences. If you want to go to them, uh, you know, they're, they're a dime a dozen run by parachurch groups that'll tell you how to be a, a good Christian leader. There's all kinds of leadership conferences. But you know what there's a lack of? Servanthood conferences. You know why? Because servanthood doesn't sell. Servanthood doesn't move books off shelves. Servanthood doesn't attract people to conference centers. Servanthood doesn't pay the bills. James had every reason to feel superior. I'm the brother of the Lord. I'm a pillar of the church. He listened to what Paul says. Look at his reference. Hey, I'm pastor of the prestigious church at Jerusalem. Listen to me. He writes none of that. He just says, James, 
a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wore none of those other badges. He simply called himself a servant. And so it should be for every one of us. In this new year, let us not jockey for position. Let's not play silly politics in church. Let's determine from the pulpit to the pew, every one of us, to serve one another and that to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning.